All right. Um, we can go ahead and get started. Nice to see all of you again. So, um, welcome back to our church history Sunday school. Um, last week was really just kind of a big overview about how to interpret church history. How, how should you think about it? Um, one of the things I always try to emphasize when I, when I talk about it is, you know, this church history is not just like a, another branch of history. It is really um, the purpose and plan of all of history, God's purpose and plan um, coming true, seeing it happen in real life. So it's, uh, you know, it's something we, we live through. If, if the church is the the people of God, the final, um, I guess, before the consummation, they're Christ's people, Christ is the head. Then the history of the church is what the whole world is about. Um, everything is about the history of the church. And so when, when you think about it, you want to be able to think long term and think with providence, God's guiding hand in the back of your head. When you're trying to interpret why things happen why certain people did one thing or another. Um, it is the guiding hand of providence, kings, emperors, um, countries, nations, movements. That is all guided by the hand of providence. And uh, when we talk about certain people, Augustine specifically, um, he, he spends a lot of time talking about providence. So uh, we're going to talk a little bit about Augustine. Um, in his conversion experience, he's sitting in the garden in Milan. Um, he's 32, not a Christian. He says, how long, Lord, how long? Will it be tomorrow and always tomorrow? Why does my uncleanliness not end this very moment? He feels guilt. He feels the weight of his sin. Um, you know, he can, he does go on to explain all the sins that he committed and when he's sitting there in the garden, crying out to God, he's praying, he feels guilty, he hears this, tole lege, um, Latin, take and read, take and read, take and read. He hears the voice of a child on the other side of the fence. And he would interpret it, you know, he's like, what kind of game do kids play where they say take and read? It doesn't seem very common but he interprets it as the voice of providence. So he has a manuscript with him. He, you know, he's a reader, he's a writer. Um, he's reading the Bible, but he doesn't really believe it yet. He's not a Christian and he picks it up and he does what we should not really do when we're trying to read the Bible and he opens it up, puts his finger there and he reads Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, not in quarreling and jealousy, which he was engaged in all of those things before he was a Christian, um, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. From that moment forward, um, he was a Christian. So we're, we're going to talk about his history to that point, and then what happened after. Um, that, that take and read, that moment of providence, uh, Augustine talks about it a lot, and everything leading up to it, and then everything after that. Now, uh, I'm going to pray, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into the subject matter. Father, we, uh, we thank you that um, you've done a great work in the life of Augustine, we thank you that he wrote books like the Confessions and the City of God um, that you use to clarify how you work internally, how you lead people through guilt and salvation, how you use your word to make truths clear. Um, pray that we would learn from the testimony of Augustine as he talks about his life, his personal history, his salvation, um, his sins. Pray that we would take wisdom from his view of providence and the church. And Father, um, just pray that your spirit would be here today. 
Augustine is a brother in Christ that loved you, that loved your word, and uh, we can be instructed by the things you've done in his life and the things he taught from your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So um, Augustine, one of his most famous books is called The Confessions, um, The Confessions of St. Augustine or St. Augustine. And there's, it's okay to say it both ways, Augustine or Augustine. Um, so if I go back and forth, I'm still talking about the same person, just so you know. Um, anybody ever heard of the Confessions of St. Augustine? It's, it's considered kind of like a Christian classic. Um, most of what we know of his life comes from the Confessions. And so it's, it's an autobiography, and it's in the form of a continual prayer. And I'm going to quote from it, because when we want to learn a little about, about Augustine, about his history, about his life, about how he thought about the world around him, how he interpreted certain events, um, almost everything he says is directed to God. So he, he's not talking to you, the reader. It's a, a prayer to God. Um, and I, we'll, we'll see some examples as we go along. Um, the Confessions is unique in the history of the church so far. You, you don't see any type of writings like that, um, as in one that, that explores the inner life, the struggles, the turmoil, the guilt, um, the moment-by-moment -moment inner thoughts. It might seem kind of familiar to us today if you read someone's autobiography or diary, might be a better category, but um, no one else in the church has written anything like this so far. And so it gives us a picture of Augustine as he struggled with reading the scriptures, assessing his life, because that's what he's doing. You know, if he's a, he's a Christian, um, all of us at some point assess who we are before God. Um, what type of guilt do we have? How do we deal with sins? All the things that you think in your mind that you pray to God, um, Augustine wrote down. And he wrote it in the form of uh, a prayer. Um, what we see is you go through the confessions, and it is probably the most readable thing he wrote. You see his struggles with sins. Um, you see his reflections on providence. Why did God do this event in my life? Why did he send me to Rome? Why did I meet this person? Why did my mother pray for this? And he never answered her prayers this way. Um, all of these little things, it's all tinged with providence. And it is a personal view of his relationship to God. Um, so before the writings of the church that we have, not the prayers, but the writings are very doctrinal. They're very teaching. They pull from the, the scriptures, but you don't really see a, a kind of um, personal struggle written down autobiography in the history of the church. So uh, this is, well, we'll get to it. Augustine was born to a Latinized, uh, meaning they weren't originally Roman family in 354 AD in Thagaste or Tagaste, North Africa. Um, North Africa is a center of religious life in um, the church at this point. So in 325 AD, there's a major event. Anybody know what happens in 325 I know several of you do. Maybe it slips your mind. It's the, the Council of Nicaea. Um, Council of Nicaea with Athanasius and the, the 4th century, 300 to 400 AD, is a very productive time in the history of the church, meaning there's a lot of things going on. Um, if you don't remember, the 3rd or the 4th century, right around 312 Constantine comes to power, and the church is no longer an official enemy of the state. Um, before that point, up until 312, and especially in, in 250 and 312, they were statewide persecutions against the church. If you were a Christian, you were persecuted wherever you went for being a Christian, um, not just you know, if you broke a law and you lose some of your rights, it was because you were a Christian, because you didn't adhere to that. Um, you were, or adhere to the Roman rule of law, the Roman, uh, worship of the emperor, then, then you would be persecuted. 
So at 312, Constantine comes to power. From 312 to 325, uh, there is a struggle within the church about who is Jesus. Is he co-eternal with God the Father? Is he the same substance, or is he something different? Is he the first creation, but still a created being? And so the church struggled with that. Um, and, and guys like Athanasius and later on Augustine would defend orthodoxy, which says God the Father and God the Son are the same in being. They're different in person. And um, the Trinity is a big, bigger discussion that I'm going to have to talk about today. But uh, just know it is a big deal in the history of the church. So he was born in 354 A.D., uh, little less than 30 years after the Council of Nicaea. His father, Patricius, or Patrick, was a moderate pagan and a minor Roman official. Um, he was not a Christian, so he worshipped moderately and, and nominally. Um, you know, he may have had a, a little shrine to Artemis in his house, um, but don't think of pagan worship like you think of Christian worship. They're not the same. Pagans didn't go to churches, and they didn't have a holy book that they read. Um, that, that's, it's very different. They might sprinkle some incense because they wanted to make sure their crop was good this year, but they didn't really, for the most part, care. Um, that there, there was no sense of devotion or loyalty or faithfulness to a pagan god, unless things got really bad, and they say, well, maybe we should have been more devoted. Um, and that was kind of a common argument. Augustine's mother, Monica, was a devoted Christian. Uh, she would have been a great topic for Mother's Day. Um, in, in many ways, she's kind of like the ideal mother um, of a Christian. Monica is a Berber name, meaning it's not Roman. And uh, I say this generally so you, so you feel the, the time period that we're in. Um, she was indigenous to North Africa. What that means is um, Latin's her second language. She was not a... Uh, what you consider a traditional Caucasian woman, black woman. There's a good chance that Augustine was a black man. Now, the only reason I say that, um, and, and nobody tells us, Augustine doesn't say I'm a black man writing theology, because it wasn't important in, in Roman society. Um, but every now and then, especially in the, the culture we live in, with the the social justice movement, there was a guy who was talking about um, social justice, and he was sad and frustrated that there were no black theologians that they had to read. And he may have not realized Augustine is a black theologian, and so is Athanasius, and they're important in the history of the church. But the color of their skin was not important at this time. Um, but if you know, anyone says, well, why don't you white churches or seminaries, um, which is commonly the accusation, read any black theologians. And you say, well, we do. We read Augustine. Probably was black. And we read Athanasius, um, who they definitely called him a black man. They called him a black dwarf to insult him because he was a short guy. Um, his enemies did. All right. So uh, going back to Monica, Monica, mother to Augustine, Monica and Augustine had a stormy but close relationship. She was a Christian. Her husband was not. Um, neither was her son. Augustine was not a Christian. She was a woman of prayer. She prayed most often for her son. Um, and this is an example kind of, of Augustine praying to God and explaining these things. So Augustine talking to God, my mother, your faithful servant, he's talking to God wept before me or wept for me before you more than mothers weep when lamenting their dead children. And she wept because he wasn't a Christian. Um, she continually prayed, continually wept for him. Augustine rejected her faith. Uh, he, he didn't want anything to do with Christianity as both a child and a young man. He lived a worldly life um, once he got out of the house and he had an opportunity to indulge in every vice, he did. He had a concubine um, when he left 
his home in Tagaste. He had a son by his concubine, um, the only son he ever had, whose name is Adeodatus, which also means given by God, um, ironically. Monica wept and prayed continuously for her son and her husband. So Monica, in, in, in her, um, she, she's so essential in the life of Augustine. Uh, and, and for you mothers out there, I want you to, to kind of feel and see historically that the power of prayer and devotion, um, what, what does a, a good mother and wife look like if for some reason, and I'm not saying this in specifics to anybody here, but um, if, if for some reason your husband is not a believer, um, your children aren't believers, what can you expect? What, what's a good way to honor the Lord? And uh, her bishop that she was talking to, she was so distraught over Augustine, he told her that it cannot be that the son of these tears should perish. She was a faithful wife and witness. Her husband, Patricius, was not a Christian. Her mother-in-law came to live with her. She was not a Christian. Um, so Monica is, in one sense, there alone in the midst of this unbelieving family that she lives with every day. She was a loving and faithful wife, and Augustine calls her that. All her good deeds spoke like voices of God to her husband and mother-in-law. He calls his mother a servant of the servant of God, a servant of the servants of God, excuse me. Um, her faithfulness, her kindness, her devotion to her family, um, her steadfastness in doing these things eventually led to the salvation of her entire family. Augustine, again, a prayer to God. He said, the virtues with which you adorned her and for which he respected, loved, and admired her. It's talking about, so the, the you there is talking about God. The he is talking about his father, Patricius. The virtues with which you adorned her and for which he, Patricius, respected, loved, and admired her were like so many voices to him constantly speaking of you. Um, Every good thing you've done was a voice of God to Patricius, and he eventually converted, repented of his sins, and became a Christian. So Augustine, um, he early rejected his mother's faith. He was a difficult child to her. Um, he tells us he was sinning as soon as he was born in his confessions, uh, meaning he's talking about his selfishness as a child. Uh, he had no siblings, and he just talks about, I was a selfish kid, a selfish baby, a selfish toddler. Now, whether he remembers that, um, more likely, you know, he used this language, so tiny a child, so great a sinner. That is a theological um, decision. We, we don't assume that he remembers being an infant or toddler. I mean, unless you're the rare person that does remember that, but he does assume um, based on his theology that he was born into sin by his relationship to Adam. By being a human being, he's a sinner. As soon as he comes in the earth, he is a sinner by way of birth, um, not by way of choice, first off. So Augustine tells a story when he was a young child. Um, he stole pears, not because he was hungry, because he liked stealing. You know, I want to steal something. I don't you know, he would take the pears and just throw them away. They didn't mean anything to him. He just stole them because he liked stealing to give evidence of his sinfulness. Um, his parents saw his exceptional gifts and they paid for the best education possible. So they saw, you know, though his mother um, wept for him, though she prayed for him often, uh, she saw that he was an exceptionally gifted and talented student. He was smart. Um, he was a good speaker, so they paid for the best education possible. They sent him to Maduera and then Carthage. Carthage was a, the, the closest big city to them. He was pursuing a career in law or public office, so he would have been a lawyer, and so he studied rhetoric. Rhetoric, uh, if you don't know, is, is the art of being eloquent, the art of persuasion, the art of putting your words together in such a way that everyone loves listening to you and they just change their mind. 
Um, regardless or not, whether it's true, you could say, uh, you know, a thousand false things, but if you say them well, you're a great rhetorician. So he went to Carthage and he was involved in all the pleasures the city had to offer. He kept a concubine. That's where he first had his concubine. Um, you know, any type of pleasures he could get involved in, drunkenness. I don't know if he ever got involved in um, other more illicit things, but he does um, get involved in a lot of things that he should. Augustine said, I came to Carthage and all around me hissed a cauldron of illicit loves. Um, so you see his love of rhetoric. You know, he's got a, a good way of saying things that you feel like when he walks into that city, it's a den of snakes and they're all trying to get him to do stuff. And this quote, which you may have heard, um, he knew he was doing things he shouldn't. And, and so he prayed, oh Lord, give me chastity, but not yet. Um, he didn't want to give up his sin. He knew it was wrong, but he loved it. And he loved doing what he was doing. Loved keeping his concubine. So the hand of providence. Um, although Augustine continued in his lusts of the flesh in Carthage, he did recognize that God kept him from greater sin. There are some things that he did not do. He did not get involved in. He would say that God's grace was at work in Augustine's life before he was converted. God touched with a bitter taste all my illicit pleasures. All the awful things that I like to do, they became bitter. Um, he said, I attribute to your grace whatever evil acts I have not done. All the bad things that I could have done and I did not do, um, it is only your providence and your grace that kept me from them. So Augustine is growing up. Um, he goes to Carthage at eight, age 19. Remember, 32, if you were here in the, the beginning, that's the age he was converted. So roughly 22, 23 years of his life before, I'm sorry, um, 12 or 13 years of his life before he is uh, converted. So he's struggling with these things. He knows he's a sinner. He loves his concubine. He loves having one. Um, he loves all the other illicit activities that he does. And as he became more enmeshed, he's growing up in the problems, confusions, and disappointments in life, the more he begins to look for answers. Um, he starts to realize that life is not just about having fun. Life is not eat, drink, or tomorrow we die. Um, so he's, he's questioning things. And if, if you were... Looking at Augustine, and you saw him at this point, and from our point of view, and probably from Monica's point of view, his mother, you might say, wow, he's finally realizing life is not about having fun and all these illicit pleasures. Um, and you said, maybe he's waking up. Maybe the Lord's doing something in his life. But he was, just not in the way that we would have hoped. Um, he didn't turn to Christianity. Remember, he's a, a rhetorician. He loves beautiful language. Um, he had difficulty believing the Bible. He had difficulty believing in the Bible as a book worthy of him to follow. Um, so remember, he's a rhetorician. He cares about beautiful and lovely language. He speaks Latin. Um, he said the style of the Bible was crude and unworthy of a rhetorician. And whether his assessment are, is right or not, um, we do know Augustine never learned Hebrew and didn't learn Greek very well. So the Bible he was reading, um, he would read the Septuagint from the Old Testament, which is a Greek translation of the Old Testament. But again, he couldn't read it as well as he had hoped. Um, there were some Latin translations. So just, just keep in mind as he's reading, he's really, really good at, at reading Latin. And he knows some Greek. But the Bible he's reading, the manuscripts he's reading, probably had a lot of, it was a crude Latin translation. Does that make sense? It's, it's not, um, I guess, for a better way of saying that when we were younger, the King James Version for the last however hundred years was a beautiful version. Um, you know, it, it is poetic in the translation. 
that, that happened in the English King James. There's, there's beautiful verses. And we can look in our Bible today um, and see just the, the beauty of some of the language and the poetry. And it stirs our hearts um, because of sometimes the, the quality of the language. You know, we, we know the Holy Spirit's there, but it's a well-written book. Um, Augustine did not see the quality of language in the Latin versions. And it wasn't a great Latin translation. It was acceptable, but um, one of his contemporaries, by the way, I'll, I'll say this now, um, a guy named Jerome, he wrote the, the Vulgate, which is considered like the authoritative Latin translation. Everybody in Rome spoke Latin at the time. So it would, it's, not a, you know, it's not a dead language back then. It was like, oh, this is contemporary. He's writing in the, the, the language of the people. Um, Augustine probably didn't have Jerome's translation. Jerome would have had a good translation, um, but he didn't have it. So uh, what Augustine, or Augustine did have is Cicero, and he loved Cicero. Um, Cicero was a, a Roman lawyer. He spoke Latin, naturally. Um, he had beautifully composed language in, in his writings, specifically one called the Hortensius, which we don't have. We don't know what it says, but um, Augustine loved it. And uh, he couldn't see himself reading the Bible because it felt inferior to him. Um, and a lot of that's probably the pride of his youth. You know, he's in his early 20s. It's like, no, I can't read that. Um, they can't compare to Cicero. He just didn't know any better. So Augustine is reading Cicero. And he awakens to a love of truth. You know, I, it's, it's not enough for me to realize that I'm throwing my life away, wasting on these illicit pleasures. Now I want to pursue truth, something true. And says, of course, I'll read Cicero. Um, and Cicero let him down. The philosophers let him down. Plato let him down. Uh, he didn't get what he was looking for. So he said, okay, maybe I'll, I'll turn to astrology. Um, which seemed very legitimate at the time, the study of the stars. Um, what does the, the planet at this time of year um, say with the stars aligned? I'm not an astrologist, so I couldn't describe it that well. But um, he turned to astrology, and he turned to something called Manichaeism. So um, Manichaeism is a Gnostic cult. And uh, I'm going to try to give you the simplest, most clearest definition I can think of. Uh, Gnosticism and most cults that are in that kind of branch are trying to answer the question, where does evil come from? And, and that's a tough question. Um, it would be tough for us to try to give a real specific, clear answer. Where does evil come from? And specifically, how does a good God that created everything did he create evil? Where does it come from? All right, so we're, we're going to get to the answer. Um, but what the Manichees, or Manny, is, is the guy who started it, Manichaeism, he would say that, and like all our Gnostics, sin, suffering, and flesh was all part of the material world. Um, a good God wouldn't create disease and sweat and things that stink and thorns, having to use a bathroom. Good God wouldn't create that because it's awful and it's gross. Um, a good God wouldn't let people die. It's not a good, a good thing. So uh, Manichaeism believed in a, a dualism. There's the good God and the bad God. And the bad God created the world. Um, and so it's really getting back to the good God who doesn't have anything to do with physical things you can touch and feel, things like that. God is separate from the physical realm. Manichaeism was a mixture of Buddhism, Zoroastrianism, and Christianity. So they would call them a Christian uh, Manichaeism. And if you ever read any secular writers on Augustine, um, you know, I, I just happened to read the Encyclopedia Britannica article, and the guy's I mean, he's as anti-Christian as you can get, um, but he lumps everything Augustine believes. He says everything he believed was Christian, um, which is, I don't know, it's, it's laughable to say the least that they would get this guy to write the article on him. But um, 
According to Manny, he was the local prophet. He would say, Buddha, Jesus, Zoroaster, and finally, me, Manny, we're the true apostles of God. And, you know, it's a big mixture saying, okay, you know, I like this about Christianity. I like, I like the things Jesus said. Um, you know, I, I like this about Buddhism, about escaping the bonds of fleshly, you know, uh, cares, passion. Um, and, and that's what he taught. And Augustine said, okay, that, that sounds pretty good. I'll, I'll see what I can do. Um, unfortunately, you couldn't reconcile the assertions of Manichaeism with the doctrinal system. If you have a God that's separate from the world, he didn't create everything, so you know, you're, you've isolated him from evil, um, how is he even God? What kind of power does he have? You know, how could you even call that being God if he's so separate? You know, is he just over there, has nothing to do with the world? Why would you even worship him? Um, no Manichaean teachers could answer him. So he left the movement again. He became a skeptic. There are no answers. There's nothing true in the world. So remember, this is his journey. It's, it's a 13-year journey. Um, he continued to read and study. He found the Neoplatonists. And uh, a light came on. Neoplatonists, they've got some great things to say. They had an answer. And this picture is, is kind of like their, I guess, their, their philosophical understanding. The drop of water creates concentric circles or emanations is what they call. There's a single source and emanations uh, come off from that source. So um, if they were going to answer the problem of evil, they would say, well, evil is not a real thing. There's still one God. One creator, and the further away you get, the closer you get to evil. Um, evil is being away from God. So evil is not a, something that you can hold or touch or see. They would say it's just being, you know, in one sense, the absence or moving away from God. This is different from the <clears throat> Yes, that, that would be traditional focus. So it is different. They, they would call themselves neoplatonists, which they they pulled some Buddhism with this. So they, um, the goal is mystical comp contemplation, meaning if you were going to be, and it's so hard to use this language, um, but a lot of times when we try to define other religions, we use Christian language. They would say, if you were going to get saved or salvation, which they would never use that word. They would never say I'm saved from anything. But if you were going to be better off, more successful, you would be able to contemplate the source. Um, it's very mystical. It, it, it has no real answers. So one of the things, and, and this will be the last thing I say about that because it takes more time than I have to explain it. But um, Christianity, when you think about Christians, when you think about Christianity, when you think about Christ coming to earth, he became flesh. Um, that, that's one of the key tenets. He became, he wasn't uh, Jesus, the spirit being. He was Jesus, God made flesh. He was real flesh and blood. He sweat, he used the bathroom, he was tired. Um, all the things that we deal with, with real flesh and blood, Jesus came into the world and he became flesh and blood. So um, these, and, and that was Augustine's problem. There's, there's no room for a flesh and blood Jesus who bleeds, who really dies um, in Neoplatonism, in Manichaeism. There's no room for him. There's just no place for him. In most of the Gnostic systems, you can't have a real flesh and blood Jesus, which is why in that period there was such a, a debate, a fight, a struggle to make sure when they're talking about Jesus, he is fully God and he is fully man. You have to have Jesus as both, or you'll never get the salvation of real people. You'll get a, a spiritual being that maybe teaches us some things. We can be enlightened and contemplate, but you'll never get real salvation for real sinners um, with real flesh, real suffering. So anyway, moving back to Augustine, 
He decided to make a career out of rhetoric, which I've said already. Um, it was a good career for someone who knew how to use words. He later calls it a chair of lies. So you, you may think of maybe some of the, and uh, I don't know if it's fair to slander these people, but some of the best politicians that you can imagine, the wordsmiths, the people um, most you know, exceptional with giving a speech. And it doesn't matter what they say, whether it's true or not. Um, truth did not matter in rhetoric. God used Augustine's love of language, his love of rhetoric to later have him tell the truth instead of lies. So, um, and I, I say this because Augustine points this out um, as an application of sorts. When you think about your life and you think about all of your history, all the things you love, all the things you are involved in, um, all the things that may or may not have any Christian, you know, intonations or applications, um, the Lord is using them. And Augustine saw that. There aren't, you know, a whole lot of Christians during that time period that talk about the love of rhetoric. But because Augustine loved it, the Lord used it. And because of that, the whole church for the next, you know, 15, 1600 years has benefited from his love of language. So he's still a Neoplatonist. He's a rhetorician. He goes to Rome, 29. You know what? I'm good at rhetoric. I'm not doing much in this backwater town of Carthage, which was less of a backwater town than Tagaste, where he came from. So he decides to go to Rome. His mother did not want him to go because she was afraid that if you get to Rome, the really big city, you're going to, you know, I'm going to lose you forever. Um, she thought everything would be fine if she could keep an eye on him. She could talk to him. She could encourage him. She could you know, give him uh, scriptures to read. She could continue to pray for him and see him. Sometimes, and this is where the kind of stormy relationship came from, because he would tease her. He would sometimes tell her he was going to Rome and sometimes say, no, I'm not going. And then he secretly left. He didn't tell her. Um, so that, that crushed her. That crushed his mom. That was really difficult for her. She really thought that she had lost him. Um, Augustine, in thinking about providence, he said, by her flood of tears, what she was begging of you, my God, was that you would not allow me to sail to Rome. Yet in your deep counsel, you heard the central point of her longing. Though not granting her what she then asked, namely that you should make me what she continually prayed for. So Augustine is saying here, she answered your prayer or her prayers by not answering her prayers. She let me go to Rome. And because I went to Rome, you use that to lead me to repentance, to lead me to you, which is what she really wanted. She wanted him to be a Christian, but she prayed for him not to go to Rome. And so this is kind of Augustine's view of things. He has a, a, a strong and high faith view of providence. The Lord answered her prayers by not answering her prayers in that sense. I like this um, picture. This is Ambrose. He's, I don't know. <laughs> I thought this was a funny pose. But um, Augustine in Milan, he arrived at Rome and he decided once he got to Rome, you know what, Rome, Rome isn't that great. I need to go to Milan because that's where the real action is. So, um, he decided to go to Milan. It's more important than Rome and necessary so he can get a better prestige or um, position. Remember, his goal is to become a lawyer, political. And he is, as he goes from city to city, he's teaching rhetoric. And he's getting influence, but it's not really what he wants to do yet. And so he's kind of looking for bigger and better things. In Milan, he met the bishop, Ambrose, um, Notice the, the, this painting of Ambrose, and you always traditionally see him, the shepherd's crook. Um, Ambrose is, he's a bishop, but he's a pastor, like the, the shepherd of the sheep. Um, that's why he's traditionally painted with that, because he is well known for being a good pastor. So he met the bishop, Ambrose, and Ambrose was a good speaker. He was eloquent. He had great rhetoric. And Augustine would go and listen, go sit under Ambrose. He didn't care about what he said. He loved how he said it. Um, and 
by the providence of the Lord. Ambrose, who's a bishop of a major city. Remember at this point, Milan is more important than Rome. He's the bishop of Milan. Um, so it's just as if, you know, I say major, 15, 20, um, 30,000 people in a city. He probably has several thousand in his church area. Um, and a guy comes in and, and Ambrose is kind to him. He spends time with him. He talks to him. Augustine began to like him as a person. Um, he, Ambrose, it wasn't like he had nothing to do. It's not a, like a backwater city. Ambrose was busy. Um, he heard sermons. Augustine, he went to church. He was moved by the singing. Uh, Ambrose wrote a ton of hymns that are really good. Um, we, we could sing some of them today, although a lot of them are. They're sung in Catholic churches, so sometimes... They're not pro-Catholic. Does that make sense? They're not Roman Catholic, but they are sung in Catholic churches. So it's not common to see a lot of Catholic hymns sung in Protestant churches, but they are great hymns. Um, he read The Life of Antony, a book that Athanasius wrote about the desert monk Antony. And uh, that, that book influenced several people throughout the history of the church. He read the Bible. Um, Seems obvious. You know, Augustine has been a, a Manichaeist. He left that because there were no answers. He's still kind of a Neoplatonist. He's still looking for answers. He's trying to, to get to the point where he's accomplished something in life. And so he started reading the Bible. He's going to church. He's hearing sermons. Um, he's friends with Ambrose, this guy that who's a bishop who he has no reason to be friends with because he, he disagrees with him fundamentally on a lot of things. Um, but then we come to the point of his conversion. So he's 32 now. Tolelege. He's, he's sitting in the garden um, in a, a moment of frustration. And he's asking himself, like I, I said in the beginning, uh, that, that little quote, um, when will I be able to pull away my uncleanliness? And he hears a voice on the other side of the garden that says, Tolelege, take and read. Um, the only reason I use the Latin version is so sometimes there's a lot of actual um, Reformation type writing literature that they use that tole lege. So if you hear it and you see it written somewhere, you'll know what I'm talking about. But take and read. He heard the voice in the garden. He opened the manuscript of Paul from Romans. And, and as I said, all he did was just open his Bible. He wasn't looking for Romans. He stuck his finger in. He started reading. He said, Romans 13, 13 through 14. Let us walk properly as in the daytime, not in orgies and drunkenness, not in sexual immorality and sensuality, which he was involved in. He still had his concubine. Um, not in quarreling and jealousy. Augustine wanted to be the best of the best. You know, he's, he's looking for political office. Um, he's a jealous person when someone got uh, honors that he didn't get. But put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. From that moment onward, he was a believer. He put away his concubine. His son still lived with him, um, but he put away his concubine. He no longer had any, uh, he, let's say this, he was a, a celibate man for the rest of his life <coughs> because he felt the weight of his sensuality and immorality. Um, he was a celibate man for the rest of his life. It wasn't illegal for a bishop to get married at that point, or I say illegal. It wasn't, um, the church still allowed bishops to get married and have kids, but he put it away because he knew the weight of his sin and, and he just never um, had a relationship again the rest of his life. He, yes, Brad. Um, did he quote? This verse or verses in the sermons and writings? Probably. Uh, I, I will say this about Augustine's writings. He wrote over 5 million words. Um, so what, what that means is, in a, a good way to think about it, if you wrote a 300-page book every um, year of your life for 40 years, so that, that would be the, the volume. Augustine is the most prolific writer in the um, early church. And actually, there's probably 
maybe I, I doubt there's anybody alive today that's read all of Augustine. Um, meaning it, it's, it's tough to read all, all of Augustine hasn't even been translated to English. Um, so, you know, not that there could be Latin readers, but it's very likely that no one alive has ever read everything that Augustine ever wrote, um, just how much he wrote. So he probably did quote it several times. He used, he talks about this in his confessions, but, um, I'm sure he does talk about it in sermons. Does that answer your question? Kind of. Okay. All right. So let's see. Um, he said the age of 32 and 386, he repented of his sins and worldliness and he followed Christ. Um, he was a different man from that point forward. He said, in talking about his conversion, I have learned to love you late. Um, meaning he, he lamented all the years he wasted. He, he was so distraught that he spent, you know, the first 32 years of his life loving illicit pleasures, uh, pursuing his own good and his own glory. So between conversion and baptism, Ambrose baptized him uh, several months later. He stayed at a friend's country estate. He stopped teaching rhetoric because um, remember he called it a chair of lies he didn't want to be promoting a chair of lies and uh, he stayed at a country estate with friends and family he sold all his possessions um, his inherited possessions that, that he would have had from his family all the land that he had um, as he was there so this is a time of peace and, and we, when you're thinking about this think about that time after you were saved uh, if you look back on your salvation what was like life like for you in the, the few months after you were saved? Um, learning, you were, in, in some sense, probably full of gratitude every day. And, and that's the way he was. He wrote about the loveliness of God's evergreen paradise. He called it a time of rest, um, even though we'll find out he didn't rest in what we would consider rest. Um, he rested there with his friends. His mother came. His son was there with him. It, it was... Uh, I really, it was one of the best times in his life, and he always refers back to it. During that time, he wrote four to five books, um, which is only a few months' span of time. Um, he was a young Christian, and, and he wrote a one book at the very end of his life called Retractions, and he lamented um, that the books he wrote during this time period still breathe the spirit of the School of Pride. You know, he was a Christian, he was reading, but his book still felt proud, um, that self-love. He said on that time, um, we rested in you from the heat of the world. Um, all the cares, all the difficulties, all the problems, all the temptations from the world, um, he had rest from them. So shortly after that time, remember he's 30, 32, um, the next year, he left Milan. He was going to go back to North Africa, to his home. There's a war going on, local skirmish. Um, so he had to stop in Ostia near Rome, and his mother died there one year after the conversion of her son. So all the prayers, all the tears, um, all the labor that Monica had done, and Augustine was saved in 386. She died in 387. Um, she lived to see the conversion of her son, uh, but it was, you know, she, she didn't live much longer after that. It was very difficult for him when his mother died. Um, he felt the weight of how much she had done for him. So uh, one thing, just as a side note, there is um, a series of conversations he and his mother had about death and the afterlife. And if you ever wanted to read, um, they're, they're really interesting to read. But uh, I'll move on because I can't get to them now. Um, Augustine stayed in Rome for a time, then he moved to Hippo, which is close to his home in Tagaste. He wanted to be a, for lack of a better term, and don't think of it the same way, but he wanted to be a, a, a philosopher. A phil he wanted to pursue this philosophical life as a Christian. Um, that language, calling yourself a philosopher, wouldn't be uh, a non-Christian type language.
church. He wouldn't say, well, there's these philosophers over here and then there's these Christian teachers over there. He, he wouldn't see a, a conflict between that language. So um, he wanted to be, you know, a philosopher kind of like he was back in his peaceful rest in Como. He wanted to study, he wanted to write. He wanted to do it for the sake of the church, but he certainly didn't want to get involved being a bishop or a pastor. He visited a friend at Hippo and while at a church service, and this is um, this mirrors a lot the story of John Calvin. There's the bishop there, and he's preaching, and he says, God always sends shepherds for the flock. And so we should ask, and he's talking to the congregation, he said, we should ask God to send a shepherd for the flock. And he knows Augustine's there, and he, know he, he knows he was saved. Um, he became a Christian. Augustine was ordained there. Um, against his wishes. He didn't want to be a bishop. He didn't want to work um, in that capacity. He felt his skills were better used in writing and study. And they were, but they were also better used as a pastor. He became co-bishop with Valerius in 395. He wanted to be a contemplative person that studies and writes. Um, and the Lord didn't let him, and the church and all of us can be thankful that he never let him be that person. Um, he has to take care of his pastoral duties. Augustine, on, on this, he said to preach, to rebuke, to correct, to edify, to care for individual souls is a great burden. It's great work. It's great labor. Who would not avoid that labor? Any thinking person would not take that up. He said, but the gospel frightens me, um, meaning... He has to do it. He's not going to be, he's not going to turn around and say, I'm not going to do it. I'm just going to go become a monk. Um, in one sense, just like Calvin, several, I think 1,200 years later, uh, God grabs him and he becomes indebted uh, from his salvation that he has to serve these people. He can't do anything else. He can't just go be a monk. So the first thing he asked for was a sabbatical. Um, <laughs> he, uh, it's, it's funny. I want to, I want a vacation before I get started with this job, but, um, he really wanted to spend time getting read. Um, he had to spend time studying. He knew that if he was going to do it, he was going to do it well. So he spent time studying the Bible, praying and weeping over his sin. Um, he, he took it seriously. Ordination focused Augustine and gave him direction, purpose, and made him a servant of God. Um, without his time as a pastor, because many of the things we have from him are not books in the official capacity, but letters. He was always writing letters to his congregation. Um, you know, they, they would ask him, you know, a question, an issue, a problem. How do you pray? Um, this happened in my life and I lost my brother, my cousin. Uh, and, and he would give them answers from the scriptures, um, and he would write letters, but he wrote letters constantly. He preached consistently. He spent the rest of his life in Hippo. Um, Hippo is an unimportant town. The only reason we have any kind of thought of Hippo or even remember it is because of Augustine. Um, you know, it's not like Augustine of Rome, the great city or even Milan, which was a great city at that point. Um, Hippo is a small backwater country town that, that means next to nothing. And one of the things about Augustine, um, he is considered, and some may argue more than this, the most influential Christian writer, some say between Luther and Paul, and some say Paul, then Augustine, and that's it. Like they don't even put Luther in the same category. Uh, meaning, and, and we're going to talk about Augustine next week. What, why is he so important? Um, what, what did he do for the sake of the church? And he really brings to light a lot of things that, that we wouldn't have thought about or wouldn't have understand, understood. So, so when you think about guys like Augustine and, and people that we're mentioning, um, the Lord used the writings of Augustine to interpret the scriptures so we would clearly understand them. Um, it, it's easy for us now to look at it. We have meaning from the scriptures. We, we interpret them um, based on 
um, the meaning that we get from teachers, from preachers. Uh, but Augustine, and the Lord used Augustine, I, I, I want you to get the hand of God behind Augustine, um, not in the same way that scripture is inspired, but he clarifies things for us. Um, as the church grows, as different teachers, preachers, pastors, um, bishops, organizations come in, along with that comes confusion. Because every person is, is teaching in a certain way. How we apprehend things is different, how we understand it. Um, so I don't want you to think he's teaching new truths. He's clarifying old truths. You know, he, he basically brought Paul, the clarity of Paul, back to the, back to the church. And when Luther looks back, and Luther is saying justification by faith, he's looking back at Augustine, who was looking back at Paul. Um, there's a history of, of confusion, and, and you'll see next week when we talk about the, the debate between Augustinianism and Pelagianism, um, how errors come into the church, and they seem reasonable the first time you hear them. It seems like, yeah, it's, it's not a bad idea. When, when Arianism came in and said, Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and he means something different than what the scriptures mean when they say that, because he's using scriptural language, it takes a guy like Athanasius to come in here and clarify and say, no, he, Jesus is not a created being. Jesus is not the first creation. He is co-eternal with God and why and how that important that is. So I, I do want you to think about that as you're thinking about guys like Augustine. Um, as you think about church history in general, the Lord uses these people not to give new truths, but to clarify and, and make sense of things. It's like putting the pieces together. You got all the puzzle pieces, but sometimes you need somebody to help put them together so that they make sense. His confessions, the city of God, are his two famous works. Brad, thank you for bringing this up. I already said he wrote over five million words. Um, let's see. Last thing, and this is the last thing I'm going to say. He died in 430. This is before the Vandals came and took over. Hippo, hippo, hippo. Um, on his deathbed, he had the, the penitential psalms of David copied, written on the wall so he could read them. And uh, this was his favorite, Psalm 32. And I'll end with this. Uh, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. This uh, first two verses of that um, really... It was a foundation for him as he's dying, as he's doing his last breath. That's what he relied on, the forgiveness of sins um, by God. And he knew he was a great sinner, but he, he always relied on the, the mercy of God and the forgiveness of sins as his hope. Um, and, and that is, in his writings, you'll, you'll see it's a thematic element that comes up. All right, any real quick questions? With Pelagius, um, it was after he'd been at Hippo, so I, I would, I don't know the exact dates. It's, it's, it's between 396 and 430, so that's probably not quite enough, um, but I know the content more than the dates. Yeah, yeah, homoousius, homoousius, that... Go ahead. So, um, I just remember you saying people go to the store and have, it was such a common thing that everybody was talking about. Yeah. Like that, that they, they, no, that would be, that would be um, in like 320 through about 360. That was Arian, I mean, Arian and Athanasius. That was the argument. Uh, Augustine, at that point, um, the Council of Chalcedon had already happened, and they've already confirmed uh, that anyone that believes Arianism is a heretic at 381. So it's really between 320 and 381. That's when the big debate about homoousius, the same or similar.
Homo Lucius. Sorry. Um, any other questions? Okay, I'm going to pray really quick, and then we need to go. Father, we uh, we thank you for the glory of your word and the forgiveness of sins, and uh, we thank you that you saved our brother Augustine. We thank you for the work that.